unpacked offering There is a Letting in the light, and that's why we're here. Welcome to the inaugural Thinking God podcast, a weekly podcast featuring discussions with leading writers, speakers, educators, and artists who take spirituality seriously and who share the conclusion that hope is still a viable option. The goal is to find valuable insights into embracing a path of faith, replacing dogma and closed thought with some ideas and concepts which might shine light into those dark corners. Today's guest is Peter Enns, who, as it turns out, is not only an insightful writer and scholar and speaker, but he's also genuinely a nice guy. Peter Enns first caught my attention with his book, Inspiration Incarnation, which challenged a number of evangelical presuppositions about the Bible, while at the same time encouraging readers to take both seriously the divine and human aspects of Scripture. It was really a breath of fresh air in a world of stale arguments over who believes the Bible the most and who believes it the best among believers. I know that's a real issue, uh, at least in in my part of the country and in the the circles I run in. His book, The Bible Tells Me So, which in many ways is sort of a layman's inspiration and incarnation, might be my favorite. And I bought a number of copies of that book and distributed them to families and friends. So ends also the Abram S. Clemens Professor of Biblical Studies at Eastern University. And I got that right. You bet. Okay, and I appreciate him taking time to join us on the Thinking God podcast. Uh, you have written quite a few books, and like I said, I mentioned to you, I've read, read several of them. Um, Inspiration Incarnation was the first one that really got you into trouble. Um, did you know at the time you were writing that, that it was going to cause the sort of uproar it did? Uh, no, I mean, I knew it was uh, going to spark, let's say, some disagreement and and debate, but that was intentional. You know, um, when you have a book that says, I'm not sure evangelicals get the Old Testament right, you're going to have some pushback. Uh, but I think, you know, where I taught at the time at Westminster Seminary, it was uh, an unfortunate sort of turn of events uh, because you know, the content of the book, I'd been teaching there for about 10 years um, with no controversy. But as I was writing it, as it was being published, there was a significant turnover uh, in administration and faculty. And so, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's one of those situations where, you know, I find myself, you know, sort of, uh, you know, let's say on the left part of that conversation, and all of a sudden I'm outside of the boundaries, but I didn't move an inch. Well, that that book actually though sort of set your entire life in a new direction, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I'd like to think it played a part in it. You know, um, I'm hoping God had something to do with that too. So just the book. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a book that, um, you know, I, I really wanted to write and I was encouraged by several people to write something like that, um, that would engage, you know, let's say a popular audience more than, you know, an academic audience, but, you know, although it affects both. Um, but you know, when you write books that people read, then people are going to read them and, uh, you know, it, it can, uh, sort of make people think, and it's it's you know there, a lot of things that I wrote uh, very let's say mainstream evangelicals would say things similar to that, but usually in footnotes someplace. Um, this is a whole book dedicated to the idea. So, yeah, that I, I would say that it was it was um, it was a significant part of let's say a journey that I was taking, and uh, there you have it. Right. Well. I'm glad you mentioned. Uh, up until that point, you really—I uh, mean, you're, you're like I said, a, a chair professor. You—you've been writing a lot of scholarly books up until that point. Not that this one wasn't scholarly, 
but the, the you know uh, you wrote the, um, uh, the the thing on Exodus and, and wisdom right. literature, right? And uh, so this was your sort of. I mean, and, and labels don't really mean a whole lot, but really into sort of um, the mainstream, sort of popular, sort of kind of book all over. Yes, I mean, sort of great. I think, you know, it was almost a transition book because, right. you know, Inspiration and Incarnation, or I and I, as we call it, um, as we insiders call it, I and I, or <laughs> I squared, whatever you want to say. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's not really a popular book because I, I'd say my audience was people who are really students of Bible which means seminary students or maybe college students. And it's not the kind of book that I think, you know, the average person will pick up and read. So I think it's, 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 um, it's sort of an in-between place between something that is primarily written for a scholarly community and then something that's written for primarily, you know, what I call normal people just sitting in the pew or just have some interest or maybe you don't go to church at all. That's where, you know, the Bible tells me so, and my last book, The Sin of Certainty, I think those are very much in that vein of, 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 of a trade book or a popular book. But I and I sort of in the middle, you know, it was a transition point. And, um, uh, but, you know, it, the thing is that because it was more widely read, I mean, it's, it's still selling. It's been 10 years. There's a second anniversary edition that came out last year, a uh, 10th anniversary edition that came out last year, second edition. And, um... You know, it's gratifying, but it, it, it just, you know, shows that there are people who want to talk about these kinds of things and the issues aren't going away. Right. And it, it also shows that and one of the things I noticed when I was doing a little, like I said, I was somewhat familiar with you from uh, reading your books, but it also shows when I was doing a little uh, Internet research, how many websites uh, popped up that, that really don't like that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, you know, I'm not offended by that. It's, right. it's you know, when you write about the Bible or God, guess what? People are going to disagree with you, you know. Um, but I sometimes listen to the kinds of criticism, and sometimes it's, it's let's just say, more reasoned than others. Right. You know, no no person has a handle on how God works, right? right. So that's, I'm fine with that. But, um, you know, when the, when the responses are like really condescending or belligerent. You know, I've, I've learned over the, the years that uh, there's probably some kind of fear behind that. And I try to listen to what are they afraid of? And then I want to approach that, you know, but you know, people do what they do. It's the internet, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, uh, uh you're, you're, you mentioned your most recent book. I want to talk about it. It's on a uh, sin of certainty. And the, it was, a, I think it was a, a really, uh, sort of, uh, natural follow up to the Bible tells me so, uh, as I mentioned to you a minute ago, uh, I have given that book to a number of people that I'm not sure would have been open to that message had it been a little more heady or a little more strident. Uh, mm-hmm. And I and I think that the new one, you uh, the sin of certainty, you actually include more almost more personal stories about your own journey away from the idea of chasing certainty and moving towards trust. That seems to be the theme that's running there, mm-hmm. and. Um, it came out of some difficult times in your own life. I know I mentioned to you a minute ago that uh, we come from at least a somewhat shared tradition in, in evangel- among evangelicals, especially where the Bible's concerned, where the Bible almost was elevated to the fourth member of the Trinity. And mm. they, were, they held a little truck for those who weren't willing to at least pretend that they were as certain as everybody else of what the Bible was supposed to say. <laughs> right. And um, I think I mentioned to you before we started, uh, I once literally saw two Southern Baptist ministers slapping at each other on the convention floor over the Chicago Council on Inerrancy particular. So I just, <laughs> praise God. <Yeah. laughs> um, 
Well, well, like some people say, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Scriptures. So, because <laughs> that's the Holy Spirit's role, right? To sort of inspire the thing, then get out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. why, why did? How did you reach the point? Uh, I mean, you mentioned it. Uh, you, you dealt with it some in your book, "The Sin of Certainty," your newest book, which uh, people can get on Amazon or just about anywhere else. It's everywhere. Um, how did it begin to sort of? Uh, um, what was the genesis in your mind that the idea that, of, of really having to be certain about anything was an approach that was just not working very well? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, where did it start? Like most things that in my life that are lasting and helpful, I, can, I can't really point to a moment. <laughs> you know, it just sort of like all of a sudden I'm in a different place. But there were certain sort of signposts along the way, I guess, that um, – you know, that led me to, to sort of making some shifts. Um, uh, probably, I guess, you know, like I say in the book, life happened and that's sort of how it usually works with people. It's not like, I want to think differently, but you have experiences that leave, you know, your, your current paradigm, your current way of looking at the nature of reality and your faith. All of a sudden those things stop having any real explanatory power. They're not satisfying. They just, this doesn't make sense. You know, the way I live and what I see and what I experience and, you know, whether it's good things or neutral things or whatever, um, you, you realize that, you know, I'm just I'm not sure that this is really any good anymore. You know, and, and for me, one of those things and I think, you know, I'm sort of not alone in this, but this is part of sort of the evangelical and fundamentalist matrix. Um, I was realizing that, you know, I I'm not really sure about the things that. I've always had to be sure about, especially teaching at a very conservative seminary like Westminster, where you have a very detailed doctrinal statement, where it doesn't leave much room for um, exploratory theology. It's all pretty much laid out. And, uh, you know, and just realizing that for me, if it works for other people, that's fine. But for me, I just had too many uh, experiences that demanded certain series of questions that would not be helped by certain, you know, doctrinal statements. So, um, yeah, it's, it's life. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, and not just professional, but personal, you know, and I think, you know, uh, it's hard to think of, you know, a human being who hasn't had similar experiences that I've had. Um, there's nothing unusual. It's, it's nothing, uh, you know, as, as difficult as some people I know have gone through. Uh, but yet it's, it's my experiences and it's my life that, that made me realize that, you know, this whole God thing is a lot bigger and mysterious than what you've been taught and how you've actually been processing information. So it's time to sort of erase, I guess, some things and, and think differently about this. Right. Oh, I I find your approach in the sin of certainty and the Bible tells me so in your recent books, um, seems to be at least the focus seems to be a little different than some of the other folks who are writing about uh, the same issue. Uh, guys like Peter Rollins, who's another very interesting writer uh, who has written about breaking the addiction to certainty and living in the world. Uh, you seem to can come back to the idea that uh, trusting God is sort of the key to making any of it make sense. Is that a fair assessment? Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the particular angle that I have is because, you know, I'm not a philosopher, Although I play one on TV, but I'm not a philosopher. I'm not, you know, a trained theologian, although, you know, 
going to seminary and being a seminary professor, you're certainly involved in that. My training is, is biblical studies, That's and I still love doing that. And so I come at it from an angle of, you know, the Bible itself uh, deconstructs this idea of you have to be certain all the time, because you have these voices in the Bible that um, that don't do that, and this idea of trusting God is just all over the place in the Bible. So, so yeah, I think that's a way of putting it. It's it's not certainty, but it's it's trusting God even when you don't feel well, especially when you don't feel certain anymore. And in that respect, you know, join the club of you know the history of Christianity, and I would say also. Um, the, the the kind of faith that's documented in the Bible, and I think that's pretty cool, quite frankly. Right. Well, you mentioned two things there. I wanted to talk about first. I was going to ask you: Do you think that this that approach is, as a biblical scholar, do you think that approach is really more of a roots based historical understanding of the Bible, which you've been writing about? I well, that's a good question. I think it's it could it could very well be. I mean, I do see that in text. I, I you know, in the book, I I talk about what. Uh, you know, in the Bible, when it uses words like faith or believe, uh, almost all the time you can simply put in the word trust, and that's really what's happening. It's not about a belief system. It's not about a set of doctrines. Even though there's content, you know, to the faith, it's not like they're, they're sort of screaming into the void and trusting a, a nameless God. But uh, the the nature of the relationship between the person of faith and God is really marked by trusting God no matter what. And trusting God enough to be honest with God, to complain and to argue, and to say, I don't get it right now, and I'm not really very happy about it. Right? That, that's, that's an act of trust as well. Um, and I see that sort of as, I'd say, the part of the, an important part, a neglected part of the historical Christian faith, uh, which includes also certainly um, Judaism, because you know, three-quarters of our Bible you know, it was produced within a, um, you know, a, a pre-Christian matrix. So, um, yeah, I, I think it is, uh, and I think you know, it's 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 a, a part of the the biblical uh, story that, as I said, you know, it's it's not taught. You know, it's there, and people talk about it. And you've mentioned some Walter Brueggemann's another person who mm-hmm. talks about it quite a bit. Uh, Greg Boyd wrote a great book a few years ago. Um, um, on doubt, and uh, you know, people talk about it, but it's not. It's, see, it's not often taught, at least in the church traditions that I'm familiar with. You know, living in this system for for many years now. So, and I think that's a shame. And I think getting people back to the Bible, boy, I hate to say, sound like a you know a raving <laughs> fundamentalist. You know, getting back to the Bible and saying, Jay Vernon McGee. <laughs> you know, and um. And seeing the diversity of points of view there and how there are people who are sometimes very strong in their faith and others who are clearly not strong in their faith or they're, they're struggling. And that's all part of the biblical witness that the biblical the, – the editors of the Bible, you know, the Old Testament after the exile, the, they – this is a part of their tradition they valued, right? So why shouldn't we? Well, I, I, the the I'm going to go back to uh, the Bible tells me so. I, I I've got a, a really good personal story. I gave that book to a couple of friends of mine who are pastors. Both of them well educated, bright men. Um, they're in the early fifties, and one of them said it just sort of opened a window for him, and it really has helped him. The other one, he's just talking about. Uh, of course, he said I'm sophisticated enough that nobody knows it in my church, but he said it's created such a deconstruction that I'm not sure where to stop. 
He's had yeah. trouble figuring out where do I, I don't believe this anymore. I don't believe this anymore. What do I believe? And he said, it, he, of course, he's isolated because as, as many pastors are, he's in an area where there's not really a lot of place to sit down and talk to somebody and get feedback. We talk on the phone. He didn't live around here. Right. But what, what, you mentioned the word de- deconstruction. How, how does somebody measure when you're uh, deciding, okay, these things I have always just sort of accepted but never really explored. Now I want to try to trust God and not look for a Bible verse to fix my uh, transmission in my car. Yeah. How does how does a person know where where to stop in that? Well, I don't think a person does know where to stop, and that's why this is difficult to do if you're like in a position of spiritual leadership, um, especially if the church culture is one where you're not supposed to do that sort of thing. You're supposed to just know what you believe and not go through periods where you're just not sure. It's, it's hard for pastors. I mean, unfortunately, I think pastors could actually model something for churches, but it wouldn't really be accepted. So let me just say that. I think it's it's difficult for some people. I had the luxury, so to speak, of of processing a lot of this while I was out of work. And but, but you were out of work because you were processing this and deconstructing. Well, yeah, but not not as deeply as uh, you know. I I was out of work. I mean, to be blunt about it, because I wrote a book that some people on the faculty were determined they did not want to be part of their tradition. Mm-hmm. But inspiration incarnation is not. It's not the fruit of that processing that we're talking about here with like the sin of certainty. Mm-hmm. That's something that came after because, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, the book's not a memoir, but I do call upon personal experiences because I think it's important when you're talking about like the nature of faith <laughs> and doubt, you have to talk about your own experiences. And, and for me, it was really a collapse of both of two worlds that I had complete control over heretofore. One is my professional life. The other is my family life. And, uh, you know, on, on the latter, I, I talk uh, as briefly as I can because it's not my story, but, uh, you know, one of my children has significant, um, uh, you know, a longstanding uh, a struggle with anxiety and depression from a very young age. And uh, that was difficult for me because I wanted to fix that, uh, but I couldn't. And so, and that made it worse. <laughs> so, you know, trying to control that and then trying to control, um, you know, people's perceptions of me at work, which was, you know, a lost battle from the beginning. Uh, those, like, my life was disintegrating. And that that is all post-inspiration and incarnation. That book, you know, generated, uh, let's say, the impetus for me to leave Westminster. But it was only after I left that, um, sort of like your pastor friend, you know, I remember, uh, you know, for a while it was just, it was a great relief to be out but then after a while, I started thinking to myself, you know, I'm so used to having the the nature of my faith, you know, circumscribed very clearly. I don't have that anymore. I, I have no one telling me what to believe. Nobody. And how far does this go? And what do I really believe anyway? Right. And so I had a sort of uh, over time and, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping an awful lot here. But over time, I had to, I guess, reconstruct my let's call it my belief system my what do i believe and a big part of that because of a lot of influences of people that i read and people that i know a lot of that came to be a recognition that a big part of faith is simply understanding that you don't know an awful lot you can believe things but you you can't be certain about things right and 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 that's you know that's that's a 
that, that's a process that you know I, that I went through, and that your you know your pastor a friend that you, you talked to. I mean, he's he's sort of in that as well. And um, I guess just coming to a point where um, I could articulate to myself that faith is not about being sure and about being certain. It's about what you do when you're not sure and you're not certain. And that is like you, you have choices at that time. You always have a choice whether to trust or to fear. And that's a daily choice I think we have to make. And um, well, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, and I think that, that what opened the door to uh, both these friends of mine, uh, one in particular was saying that what made your book, uh, the one I'm talking about now, the Bible tells me, so the one before the new and the sin of certainty, uh, was that you, unlike some of the books they had read that were sort of deconstruction in their approach, that they sensed a very clear and abiding love for God and trust in God <clears throat> at the same time you were exploring these issues. Is that something? You yeah, that's I mean, um, mission accomplished. See, when people come to that point of view, and that's why it's 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 very um, somewhere between discouraging and annoying to me when occasionally people say, "I read your book, but you're totally negative." There's <laughs> nothing here to take away from. It's all about bad, 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 bad. It's like, well, that you can have your perception. My perception is that it's not like that. I'm actually. Um, trying to put these things in a, in a different kind of framework they are usually put in a very negative, like Bible bad, God bad kind of framework. But me, it's like, Hey, it is what it is. And faith in God doesn't depend on having these questions ironed out. So let's talk about, you know, faith seeking understanding as the old saying goes, rather than I have to understand first so that I can have faith. Why do you think that so many people, I'm not talking about leaders now, just the, the, the average person who is seeking some sort of spiritual path, uh, particularly if you've been raised in a tradition where certainty really was, even though maybe not described in that way, a very real part of it. You mentioned fear. Why are they afraid to even explore the idea that the Bible may not be any less valuable if you don't have it all figured out or have to defend it? Well, I think because one of the perks of of Let's just stay with Christian faith here. One of the perks of Christian faith is that your entire life narrative and your afterlife narrative is ironed out. And when you feel like holes are being poked in that narrative, it's distressing. And I think it is fear-producing. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, uh, actually, I work with him now, Ken Sparks, to name you know some of sure. people listening may know. But um, – we, years ago, it might have been 10 years ago, we were having lunch or something, and, and we were talking about this issue of fear that makes people react in certain ways to new ideas. And I, and I said, it, you know, I, I think there is a fear behind it. And he said specifically, he said, I think it's a fear of not knowing what happens to you after you die. And I said, no, I don't think that's too specific. But over time, I've thought about that. And I said, I think that's actually, I think he's onto something. You know, I think at the end of the day, there's a fear that in, if, if I start wondering, like, you know, is, is the Adam story about history or is it like a metaphor or myth, right? If I go down that path, at the end of the day, I can't trust anything in the Bible. And if I can't trust anything in the Bible, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. And I don't know if I'm going to see people who I've lost who are no longer here anymore. I don't know if I'm going to see them again. And uh, so that, that becomes then a pastoral issue. Right, but I, th I think that's that's a big thing that's behind it. Your your high your whole narrative for how you make sense of yourself, uh, you know, God, the world, you, your place in the world, that can unravel 
if you start poking holes in the Bible. And that's unfortunate because it, the reason it, un, it can unravel rather quickly is because how the Bible has been set up to function in the life of faith for many people, which is as it basically a book that answers all questions, not a book that raises questions. Mm-hmm. The problem is that when you start reading the Bible, that's exactly what happens. You start having questions raised in your mind about, well, how can this be compatible with that? Is this really real? Is this a story? I'm, what am I reading here? You know, and um, you know, to, to create church cultures where the exploration of faith and even the role of doubt are valued and not vilified, I think I think that's something that is a hard place to get to. And I really sympathize with people who, you know, are trying to sort of suppress questions that they own that they have you know it's the old metaphor about a beach ball underneath the you know the pool surface you can keep one or two down maybe three if you sit on one but if you got five or six it comes erupting to the surface and and you know it's a it's it's a shame that cultures of faith are set up for that kind of thing to happen very often instead of letting the exploration be a part of the expression of faith which i think if if I can speak in blanket terms, uh, you know, Judaism I think does better than Christianity about debating and arguing and not knowing, and I think a lot of uh, iterations of the Christian faith through history have been understanding of the fact that a lot of theology is what we don't know, not what we do know. Well, I think that's a great point because the Talmud is, is is questions and it includes not only the majority opinion but it maintains the minority opinion as well. Right. Right. I think I'd read a, 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 a an essay somewhere. Uh, a rabbi was talking about they do that because a hundred years later they find out sometimes the minority <laughs> opinion was right That's because right. they kept it in there. But you mentioned the afterlife. I grew up in the deep south. Like I said, I grew up Southern Baptist. Went to two Southern Baptist seminaries, and the laser focus on the afterlife, on who's going uh-huh. to hell. And even now, I mean, you look at the majority of the churches over ten thousand people or more. I'm um, there's one right here, in, uh, one the second largest church in the country is right here in, in, in Anderson, South Carolina, very small, southern. Um, it, it focuses so much on what are you doing to make sure people don't go to hell. And I know Rob Bell's book was not any, anywhere near the first, but it was probably the one, like you were talking about earlier, the more accessible reason that says, why are we starting with hell and not starting with God? Mm-hmm. And that focus on an obsession with where am I going to go when I die leaves so many people at a loss where to live. Right. Which is, I think, you know, ignoring, if I may say, the Bible, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> biblical witness, which, you know, you, you have some things there, you know, Paul in moments of stress and crisis talks about the St. Philippians, for example, that's, that's, that's a good uh, example. But um, how much does Jesus talk about that? Right. Not a lot. How much does the rest of the New Testament talk about? It's there, but it's not like the main theme. The main theme is how Christians live in community with each other, how you live in the world around you. And and we see snapshots there of of what it looks like, say, in the first century to live as followers of Jesus, God's Messiah, the climax of Israel's story, what it means to live like that in a Greco-Roman world. And, and, we get to try to transpose that, you know, to other cultures and other moments and other times. That's a task of theology. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the, the focus on to, to make to make as a primary point, uh, the Bible basically, you know, 
teaches us about how to escape hell. Um, I defy anyone to show me where this is a dominant theme in <laughs> anywhere in the Bible. It's not. Right. And if you wanted to try to pick a, 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 the only place that even is even close to the way it's presented in its conclusion, they never present the front end of it is in Matthew 25. You know, <laughs> basically, right. that's the only place, that little place on the end of it. They like to take the little part on the end about being cast into the lake of fire or something, right. but they don't want to talk about how those people were. Uh, yeah, what what they did to get cast. In the how, are, how are your students now? Eastern University, I know you have a mix of students. There are people there of faith, people without faith. How do they respond to um, this message of trust and not looking at the Bible as some sort of textbook, science book, uh, something that it was never meant to be? Well, I think generally very positively, um, unless they're not telling me something. Uh, but I think, you know, Eastern is is um, is a diverse place. You know, uh, and it's always been that way. We we have a, a broad range of um, theological positions and temperaments, you know, on the faculty and in the administration. So it's a little bit easier, you know, there than it might be in some other settings. But uh, but I think generally speaking, you know, I just with students and with colleagues and with others, uh, you know, this is something that I think is, you know, it's being received very favorably. And I'm, and I'm glad for that because, um, you know, I'm not inventing anything. You know, I'm not the first person to think about this sort of stuff. So um, it's it's more getting connected, I think, with a strand of the Christian faith that is sort of buried in sort of this modernist paradigm for the Christian faith that uh, I think many people hold to, which is, you know, a, a modernist paradigm, meaning, uh, you know, certainty. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and things can be assessed uh, essentially on an intellectual basis. And so you have, you know, 45 minute sermons, which tend to be lectures because the fundamental way of getting connected with God is through your head. And I'll never deny the importance of the mind. I mean, I live in that world and I like it, right. But it's not everything. And it, and when it becomes absolutized that, you know, the Christian faith rises or falls with certain arguments and certain proofs, um, that never works. You know, that just never works. Well, and that's why I think some people, uh, um, among them uh, guys like Brian McLaren, have talked about how each tradition brings something to the table, you know? Right. Uh, we can, we, we need to, we need the charismatics uh, and, and we need the, you know, folks who are on the more scholastic side to kind of bring those both to the table, but not to throw them into a blender and turn them into some kind of mush, but just to bring a different... <laughs> Um, but we're, we're, one of the reasons I started this podcast is there's so many people who just seem to be moving away from hope and certainty. I know a recent study found that 25% of millennials not only don't believe in God, they don't really consider themselves atheists per se. They just see the concept of God as irrelevant. And right. that, that number is even stranger. I saw in Iceland, 100% of Icelanders under 25 do not believe the world was created by God or that God is relevant at all. Mm-hmm. So what? How do you respond? Like you said, you have a lot of international students and a lot of diversity. How do you respond not only to students but to other our other you know humans that we're walking around the planet on who are not only not seeking certainty of any kind, they just see this whole idea of a search as irrelevant. Uh, I just want to say God hates you and wants to strike you down. <laughs> oh no, wait, I'm sorry. That's what I was thinking. I didn't mean to say that. No. Having a flashback there. Yeah, just a flashback. <laughs> I just, I don't know what happened? What happened? I'm okay. I'm okay. All right, here we go. Um, no, I. You know, I I, I do talk with people, you know, 
who who you know think along those same lines are all around me. You know, I'm not in a cocoon someplace, and I just say, you know, on one level, I don't blame you. You know, I don't, I don't blame you for coming to that conclusion because the God that you're thinking about is one that is. I mean, I I hate talking in you know technical gobbledygook terms, but I think it is a God that is more captured by a modernist way of thinking about the nature of reality, like objective reality, and, you know, God is something there should be evidence for, and if there's no evidence, blah, 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 this and that. Um, and, and you know, not, not a clear understanding of how, uh, I think, science, which I love and is great, um, can't answer questions of ultimate meaning. You know, I don't think God can be tested for, right? In other words, I think it's it's missing an element that has been a part of the Christian faith uh, for much of its history, which is a true uh, respect for the mystery and the otherness of God, and where God is not a being that you can sort of like, I see no evidence for God up here in the sky, so that must be false. Or or the Bible says weird stuff, and it's dumb, and it's irrelevant. Um, you know, therefore, none of this means anything. I I just want to, I want to challenge people not to reject the God of a particular cultural trapping and to think maybe what you're rejecting may not be God at all, but it may be how people have constructed God and you see these things on the news or, you know, on cable TV or whatever, you know. So I get it. The thing is that, you know, I don't want to look at these people and say, boy, you're dumb. Actually, I understand. See, if my options are that kind of God or nothing, I'm with nothing. Right. Right, I'm not there. I'm, I actually agree with them. I'm just saying, like that God is—I don't recognize as God either. I used to, but I don't right now. Because those, are, those are great points. I'm glad you mentioned it because I'm the same way. I don't believe in that God either, but I, and I, I, I used to as well. I mean, I came out of the tradition where, you know, it was, hey, uh, do you know where you're going to go to heaven or hell if you die? Not anything else, you know. And it, and it that was so hammered in. But the idea that that nobody cares about that anymore. Uh, I say nobody. It it, yeah. it has become less and less relevant with every past. And you mentioned science. I think one of the things that I think voices like yours are important in this in the in the uh, theological world in the same way that science is self correcting. Sometimes it takes a number of years, but generation after generation, science sort of corrects itself. They we mm-hmm. got that wrong. We're getting this right. Right. This, the idea of certainty, though, is we may have gotten that wrong, but we're not going to give any ground on it because we do. People will start doubting our whole message, and <laughs> we, right. it's a house of cards rather than, hey, we can admit we were wrong here, but uh, we, weren't, right. we weren't wrong about the fact that there is a God you can trust in. Right, right. And and the, the, the problem is that when we put everything sort of into the same bag, like it's all or nothing, like our entire theological narrative has to be correct. Yeah, I mean, the, the the classic is, at least I shouldn't say the classic, but what I see recurring with, the, like, the evolution discussion, you know, if Adam is not a real person, there's no fall, therefore there's no gospel, there's no need for Jesus to come. That's, that's an all-or-nothing kind of argument that sort of presumes the validity of a particular narrative. But, you know, looking at the Bible, there are actually other narratives in both Judaism and Christianity about what Adam represents and what, what the whole story is about that I think can expand our minds saying, listen, maybe, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be equating our theological system with God. Maybe our theological systems are always in a process of, you know, being, we should be open when change is necessary. Right, whether it's because we know the Earth is round now and not flat, or we know there was no first human couple, right? 
um, maybe our theology should be held a bit more gently. Um, but the, well, you know, what are you going to tell people? I don't know. I'm going to try to live a certain way with people. And I might not have an argument because I'm not, I'm not sure arguments are actually the thing that work anyway. It's more in community, people living certain ways that people say, I, there's something there that I want access to, that I want to be a part of. And the Bible calls that love. And, um, you know, in first John was a chapter four or chapter three, someplace that, you know, we, you know, to paraphrase, um, n- none of us have ever seen God, but if we love one another, that's, that is where God is manifest in a community that other people can see and say, well, there's something big going on here. And no, they may not have all the doctrinal points of, you know, a 33 chapter doctrinal statement or a 50 point doctrinal statement, but you know, that, that can come, those kinds of doctrinal discussions or theological discussions that can come, but you know that's that's that sort of talk is absurd apart from a, a, a deeper context of I think community united in humility and love and I and that that is a very not that, to me that's a non-negotiable biblical teaching if you want to talk that way you know that's Paul talks more about humility and pride than almost any other topic except for Jesus's resurrection I think you know. Well, I think you're right, and I think uh, I know from in, in my my faith journey, I spent a number of years with those sort of ugly twin idols of be certain to be certain about the Bible, and and really, and and, my, and I studied and studied the languages, and felt like I had to be able to defend it, and also the sort of its ugly sister is the idol of my own goodness. I felt like I had to be good enough, and, right. and instead of trusting God, I was trusting my own ability to suck it up and do good things and be a good person. And You're really screwed up, aren't you? Absolutely, and that, which makes Man. me a perfect candidate for this fight we're talking about. <laughs> I'm <laughs> glad I'm not. Yeah, really. Well, I'm, well, that's, that's why I'm having to do this podcast. <laughs> see if I can get some help. But <laughs> yeah, right. but it it uh, it there's such a freedom, and and it's you know it's an exhaling when you begin to think uh, it is about trusting God, and that there is there's hope, and it's not about uh, us, but it's about us in community. It's not uh, we're not the last uh last man standing that's gonna have to fix the world and mm-hmm. you know, make sure everybody gets Jesus right. Right. I mean this just the earth is so people have been around for so long, you know, and there is, you know, I think what people pick up on, there is an arrogance in thinking that Yeah, I pretty much have that all figured out. I have the human story figured out and I understand the universe and you know um, which which I think is sometimes implied there are no serious questions afoot and because you know how things work and the problem there is that and this is what I get into in in the sin of certainty but the problem is that life gets in the way of that pretty quickly and you know to, to, to clutter up that neat tidy little work dust that we have that we call life and uh, to to present us with challenges that we can't account for in our way of in our very limited culturally determined human local way of thinking about the nature of reality. So that's why I mean we don't have a choice really, but you know uh, uh, with the worn phrase to have faith or as I would rather put it to trust God. We don't really have a choice. And when when you're really trusting God, I think the first thing that comes out is a a generous and humble lifestyle where you have convictions and sometimes stronger than others. And you may speak about those convictions, but it's never from a point of superiority. 
Yeah, I think it, only only God can love us when we get that way. And I know I know from yeah. from my my experience, all of the things that uh, I was so um, wound up about convincing people that I believed um, when I began to trust God, uh, I began to experience God more than just be uh, you know devoted to an idea or a concept or a list mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. All right, you've got on your on your website. You have a number of questions in your about section. I want to see if you can answer those for me. <laughs> I doubt it. Okay. All right. I have questions. You do. What, right. is, what, is, what is the Bible anyway? Yeah. What is the Bible? Um, I would put it this way off the top of my head. Let me try to keep this to a tweet size. <laughs> um, I think the Bible is a diverse collection of ancient writings. This sounds really secular, but let me get to the end. It's it's a diverse it's a collection of diverse writings of antiquity that um, model for us genuine experiences of God and journeys of faith and all the complexities that go along with that. Um, and and it does so in ancient ways in ancient language. And so, you know, when I read the Bible, um, I can connect with it as a person of faith because of, you know, there are parts that I connect with, there are parts that I don't connect with. And, and, and as life changes, you know, there are other parts that I connect with more. I mean, I, I, I didn't really get into the book of like Ecclesiastes or Job until my mid forties. And I could say, Oh, they're like me. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if a 20 year old can really grasp that. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not, that's just, you know, a fact of life, I think of just mm. age, maturing and stuff. So, so I think, you know, it, it's, uh, and I think it's fair to say I have maybe more of an anthropological view of scripture, like from bottom up rather than top down. You know, I, I know the thing that I should say is like, well, this is the word of God. It's inspired by God and, and everything there is, is, is directed and guided by God. I actually have no idea what God does. And, and you know, I don't think the Bible tells us anything about what God does, you know, except for that one verse about, you know, all scripture is inspired by God, but it doesn't really tell us the mechanism of what that means, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I suppose that's true, but I just don't want to like hang everything on a particular theory of inspiration or revelation. You know that but verse always in the Bible is this diverse collection of texts where people actually don't say the same thing; they disagree. That verse they, you just mentioned about all all, all scripture is, is God's part sounds a little bit like a user agreement on a piece of software. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, it's covered yeah. all it is. But uh, all right, but you, you, is, you, you know, cover that a little bit in your second question. You've covered a little bit of it, but it says, uh, "I'm sorry." What are we supposed to do with a book like this? You were talking about that. I just thought I'd throw that in because you're already talking about that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. And and the thing is that you know, I, I mean, not everyone's wired this way, but I, you know, I like asking questions like that and thinking about it because I I can't avoid it. It's just the what I see, and and I think, you know, if I if I can speak for God, I think God's okay with that. You know, I can't help the way I'm born and the questions I ask, and the other can many other people and. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to look at scripture, let's say in those more anthropological terms, than presuming that I understand how everything works from the top down. I'm not at the top. I'm at the bottom, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so I perceive and I, and, and, and you see, this is the thing you see this in the Bible. You see 
expressions of the nature of God and what God is like from the point of view of, like, say, an ancient tribal people. So God is a warrior fighting your enemies against on, on your side or in front of you, right? Um, that's that's a beautiful example of a culturally informed or maybe culturally shaped and framed way of talking about the nature of the higher power. And I respect that, but I also look at that as, yeah, th this is a way of expressing what God is like. I want to see what's here, what, what theologically is going on here, what are they saying, maybe beneath the surface, what are they assuming about God that I can sort of carry with me and sort of apply in different ways. But you know, I, I, I don't take that and say, well, this is now a frozen snapshot of how we should think of God, right? Because we have a Bible that progresses and that moves, that changes, that's diverse. We have this New Testament thing we got to think about, too, the whole Jesus part, you know, which isn't neat and tight either by any means. But it just, it, you know, it just, you, you look at this and you say, okay, it's not a rule book. It's not a cookbook. It's not an owner's manual. Mm -hmm. It's not a set of instructions. It's a story. And it's diverse, and it's not. There's no attempt to, you know, if you just the Old Testament itself. There is no attempt on the part of the final editors of the Bible to streamline the story. It, the diversity remains because that's part of their expression of faith. It's and I think an extremely valuable lesson to t take away with. It's interesting that when you said that, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the twelve-step movement, where people come into a group and they reach a point where they're willing to. Uh, say that their lives are unmanageable, they need a power greater than themselves, and they turn their will and life over to that God of their understanding. And at first, sometimes the tribe itself is their God, but millions have actually ended up with a faith in the God that you and I follow because they found it in community and they found the tribe. And it evolves over time. You watch it evolve as people are involved in that. And right. It's sort of a modern picture in, in, in encapsulated of, like you're saying, the old the Old Testament through the New, how in some ways uh, they were it, – well, it was – as we were talking about, I was talking about science earlier being self-correcting. There were things kind of self-correcting. It's just a lot of times people don't want to, to follow that. Okay, next question. Um, uh, why should anyone care about the Bible? Mm -hmm. That's on your about page. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. No answer? Uh, uh, no. Okay. Not at the moment. All right, that's fine. Say, say the question again. Okay. Why should Use anyone care? You, 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 the first question, these are in order from your page. Uh, what the What is the Bible anyway, and what are we supposed to do with a book like this, and then why should anyone care? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's the kind of stuff I'm still sort of working on. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't mind saying that. I just, you know, you know, why should I care? what this ancient text says. And I, and I think for me, probably the answer at this point in my life comes down to the fact that th this interesting and messy collection of books and, and writings has nevertheless been a central means of grace on the part of the church since a very, very early time. Um, you know, we don't really have a New Testament until, you know, a couple of centuries or, or later into the, the Christian era. But there was always the Hebrew Scriptures. That was a part of, um, uh, th that was the language for articulating the nature of faith, which is always being sort of thought of through different cultural categories. This is why we have, you know, Greek philosophy becoming important in the early centuries of the Christian Church. Because you have to sort of 
adjust it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? You have to sort of adjust it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, that, that's, that's maybe why people should care. You know, cause I'm not going to sit here and say as a Christian, I'm, okay, first thing, I'm just not going to care about the Bible very much. I said, no, I think I need to care. And if I don't get how I should care, that's all the more reason to think about it more and to dig in deeper. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want, I want to respect the history of the Christian church um, and, and all its diversity that the Bible is really, really important. Okay. I'm going to group this last little section together because they're, we're running short on time for you. But uh, you, you said on the same, this is right after the question about Karen, that you tell stories about the Bible and try to make some sense of God. The questions are, what is God up to? What does God want? Is God real? And so what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you got, can you answer those in two minutes? <laughs> no. Well, what I will say, though, is that I think the reason I put that on the website like this is to be provocative, but also, okay. I think more importantly... To let people know that I think those kinds of questions are not bad questions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think you know, for for someone who's let's say been a Christian for a long time, I mean, I see this in college. You know, they've been raised in Christian homes, and they're in college, and it's not because of classes; it's just because they're away from home, and they have to construct meaning differently, right? It's not circumscribed for them; they have to. They're becoming adults. I mean, it's not unusual for me to talk to students and say, I'm just not sure God is real or not. Right. And I let them say that, right? I, 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 you know, they're not the first people to say that, to ask that question, to wonder about that. And I think what they're doing is they're actually, you know, if I could be presumptuous here, I think they're leaving behind a God of their childhood and maybe moving toward a more complex understanding of the nature of God that can't be, you know, controlled quite as easily, which is a difficult thing, but they don't know anything else, right? So I think, I think it's a good question to be asking, and that's why I put it on the website. I, I think these are, there is no question off the table. There's no question that you can't ask as a person of faith. There's no question that's going to shock God. <gasps> I can't believe he asked that. I mean, there's nothing like that. It's just we're human beings, and I think it's actually an expression of faith to ask questions like that, not evidence that you don't have faith. Uh, thanks for clearing those up. I was pretty certain you'd be able to do that. Um, no, <laughs> but I do, I do know, though, people in their 50s and 60s who've waited that long to ask that question. So it's very healthy to ask it early and begin that journey because I've known people who've been people of faith their whole life and just suddenly sure. it seems stale or there seems something seems old about it. That they, right, right. All right, finally, what's going to be the uh, topic of your next book? Will you decide what your next book's going to be? Uh, it actually, um, I've been thinking about it, Greg. I don't really have a specific topic, but it's going to be uh, something about the Bible. <laughs> wow. I could have gone on a limb on that one, I think. <laughs> well, I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, I, I, I sent out on my newsletter a question saying, "What do you, I have some ideas, but what do you think I should be writing on? And uh, there's some really good ideas and some like clusters of agreement on the part of several hundred people who responded. It took me a while to go through those emails. Um, but something about uh, less deconstructing and more just sort of presenting things, just having a vision for the faith and how the Bible fits into the faith, that goes beyond deconstructing bad patterns and just sort of like, 
doing a different pattern. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what that looks like. And, 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 you know, I've got, I've had discussions with other people about possible topics. So I'm, I'm kicking that around, but I'm planning on in earnest this fall, really like working out exactly what I want to do. And, and hopefully I can start writing maybe in the spring. So we'll see. So the people who can't wait for your next book though, you do a blog. Oh yeah, yep. I do a blog and I, I try to put something up maybe about three times a week, sometimes a little more. Um, Occasionally a little less, just depending on my teaching and grading schedule and things like that. So that's uh, PeteEnds.com. You can also find it at the Bible for Normal People. Uh, takes you to the same place. And, uh, yeah, I've got some essays there about the Bible and faith and, and all sorts of things. Well, when I work my way back to normal, I guess I'll be included in that group. But uh, Yeah, try it. <laughs> it's a great website. Listen, Pete, I really appreciate your time this morning. I know you're busy, and I uh, really appreciate the effort you have put into uh, uh, bringing out a voice that I don't think is heard enough um, for people of faith to actually experience God rather than just trying to experience uh, a book. So uh, I appreciate that, yeah. Thanks for your thanks, time, Greg. and look forward to talking to you again sometime. You bet. See ya. See you, Pete. Again, Pete N's latest book is The Sin of Certainty. Go out and get a copy and also suggest reading The Bible Tells Me So. All of his books are available at Amazon, and he has a page there just of his books. He's written Bible commentaries, as we mentioned. You can also visit PeteNs.com, where you can read his daily blog and other thoughts and find out more about speaking engagements that Pete Inns is up to. Well, that's it for this week, our first edition of Thinking God podcast. Next week, we have another great guest when Brian McLaren joins us. So I hope you will join us for that. Until then, if you have any questions, send us an email at podcast at thinkinggod.com. Check us out on Facebook or check our website out, thinkinggod.com. And we'll develop and add more information as we go along here. See you next week. you got to let your soul shine, just like my daddy used to say.